Hearts. Southern Soul Livestream is a weekly talk show and music hangout where the hosts learn your name and just might remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight fascinating people, discuss current events, and pay special attention to lifting up generations. So if you want to know more, learn more, be more, or just be, Southern Soul Livestream is the place to be. Join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at soullivestream.com. Awesome. I love it. I love it. You know, you're getting better than that. You know, it seems, you know, a little soul coming out, you know. I think we can add some salt and pepper to that chicken. (laughs) (laughs) So let me see if I get this. So to be a bigger spotlight, Dr. Balkum, we'll go and get started. Let's see here. Yes, I think I'm going to stay here tonight. So welcome, welcome. What's up, Natalie? Girl, this is your show. This is your night. And I'm just no, thinking. No, it is not my show. It is the people's show because I've invited some people um, who I think I see a couple of folks on here too who are oh, all yeah. who are going to give a shout out. Who we got on here? Um, so uh, Amber Shenevert. Did okay. I say that right, Amber? She's yes. she's not only yes, yes, you did. So she, thank you. So Amber is. Um, a PhD in marketing at like myself and she Amber you know what introduce yourself baby like I'm not I'm not gonna do that what's up Amber say hi to us hi um yeah I'm still I'm actually multitasking because I'm still working um I am my my PhD is in advertising um I graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with the PhD in 2013, I went straight to um, St. John's University um, in the College of Business and Marketing um, right after to become a full-time faculty member and realized slowly but surely that academia was not for me. So I definitely um, just aligned very well with Natalie and I think she and I have had some of these conversations. So I just told her I would come through and, you know, be a resource for her as she's discussing this topic. Awesome. Awesome. I think I heard rumors of, you know, the network and the people, the like-mindedness. I love it. And Natalie, I love how you introduced that because we have a few people who um, I know PhDs in the audience. I say um, Mr. Mia Laden is online. So, hey, Mia, feel free to unmute yourself. Hi. I see also, um, I think Frederick, Frederick, I, I never keep up. I think um, Dr. Harris, he, he doctor no matter what, but because um, he DMD and PhD, I think, but I can never catch up. Oh, oh, oh that's nice. So who else, who else we got on? Who else want to say hi and introduce themselves? I see Mia gave a thumb up. <laughs> you want to say anything, Mia? Yes. Hi, hi, everyone. I'm Mia Rochelle Loudon. I go by Mia Rochelle. I'm in Maryland. Hope everyone's having a good evening. Can I see? Nothing to see, kid. Where I go? Ah, I see Apollo is there. Keeping an eye on mommy. <laughs> oh, yeah, always. <laughs> so who else we got? Who else we got in the audience who wants to uh, introduce themselves? Well, hang tight because we're going to have a discussion. Well, you know, it looked like... Look like Dr. Harris is here, and he does. He, you see, Dr. Harris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for uh, 
the brief introduction, Calvin. Um, yeah, this is Fred. I'm actually in uh, New Jersey right now, right outside of uh, Manhattan. Uh, got my PhD in biochemistry, cancer biology, back in 2014 from Perry Medical College. Again, um, realized that academia wasn't for me. Ended up going to get my uh, DDS um, from UNC Chapel Hill. So, yeah, now I'm actually uh, practicing dentist. Well, actually, residency to be a pediatric dentist. So, interested to hear what, what, what the topic is going to be about tonight. Excited. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Harris. You know, I, I love the humble people. I give Fred a hard time, but he's so humble and supportive. I, I often have to kind of squeeze it out of him. So thank you, Fred, for letting us know what you do. Anyone else in the audience would like to give a shout out? Well, if not, let's, let's, let's jump into it. So, so Natalie, you know, I'm excited about this topic, you know, for a few reasons. Um, last year, you know, I started kind of considering the whole PhD path. And as I stepped into it, I started getting this thing that I was like, this thing can be real complicated, right? And when we connected, I said, you know what? I found the right person who can break down this topic, what I call chop it up and just keep it real and plain. So I'm glad that we connected on this. So I want to introduce you. So, um, so Dr. Baucom is a professor who teaches marketing-focused courses to undergraduates and Masters of Business Administration students. She specializes in working with businesses and organizations who are either owned by Black, Indian, and people of color or serve this, this group. She specializes and conducts quantitative research focused on understanding how brand symbols influence the consumption behaviors of, I can never say it, what is it? Is it Bi BIPOC? That's what it is, it's BIPOC. She has held positions at Bentley University, North Carolina A&T University, and she is currently faculty at the University of Massachusetts in Boston and North Carolina Central University, also her alma mater. Thank you, Natalie, for being here. You're welcome. <laughs> um, actually, Cent uh, Central is my parents' alma mater. I unfortunately don't have a degree from Central. I wish I did. You know, that's so funny because I can never keep up because you are like so close, right? So it's like all of your yeah. family, but not you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like um, a couple aunts and uncles. I would say, yeah, they're yeah, primarily Eagles. Um, and a few, mm -hmm. and a, sorry, and um, and and a, and a couple of Aggies because my cousin Jennifer is on here as well, and she's an Aggie, so I don't want to get cursed out. Uh oh, what's up, Jennifer? <laughs> so now yeah, let's gotta... get started. Tell us about what you do today as faculty at University of Massachusetts and faculty at North Carolina Central University. Okay, so I really want to start off by letting you guys know that um. Due to COVID, um, I don't work anywhere full-time right now, and that is by design. Um, I work part-time, um, and if some of you probably are thinking, like, how does she afford to work part-time? I live well below my means, uh, just so that I can, and, I'm out, and I've just kind of always done that, so that if I have to dip from a good job or the environment's not that great, um, I try to be a 
put myself in a financial position to be able to do that. And COVID was definitely one of those um, positions, situations where I wanted to put myself in that position. So I'm an associate lecturer at University of Massachusetts in Boston. Um, I teach social media marketing and internet marketing there and, um, and also brand management. And at North Carolina Central University, I am this fall, I'm going to be teaching marketing research and consumer behavior. And I also teach international marketing there as well as international business with the MBA students. Awesome, awesome. I love those topics. I'm gonna have to add you to the board of advisors because I didn't know you were doing all that. You write on yeah. topic. So I yeah, so, will yeah, be- Marketing is my background. So Mark, I, I, in some shape, form or fashion for over 20 years, I've lived marketing and sales. Yes, and, and you've done so much. And Kiasha, I'm glad she's joining now because, you know, perfect timing. I see Joy just popped in. But now that- I'm glad you mentioned, you know, back and what you've been doing, because Natalie, I've known you to do so much. OMG. I'm like, you know, there's a few people. The only person I know who's probably been in school more than you is Fred, Dr. Harris on here, right? Between you and Dr. Harris, y'all should compare notes because both of y'all, I remember Dr. Harris, he's like, I think I'm going to, I said, no, you need a W-2. And he know I said that, right? But hey, you know, I'm just putting this business out there. What's my point? Natalie, you've done so much. Tell us your story, your education and your life, you know, before you receive your PhD. What led you to pursue not only a PhD, but also an MBA? And I think it's the Master of Science in um, Europe, right? Yes, in luxury goods and services. Yeah, tell us about that. What led you to that? How did you get to the PhD? What were you doing before then? Okay, so um, when, I when I finished my bachelor's at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels, if there are any Tar Heels online. Um, I was in marketing for about 15 years and, um, then I moved over to sales for, no, so I was in marketing for about 10 years and then I moved over to sales, pharmaceutical sales for five or six years. And I got my MBA while I was working for Merck Pharmaceuticals in this, as a sales rep. Um, and the reason why I did my MBA that way Literally, it was just because they were paying for it. Um, at the time, Merck did a full tuition. That's where Calvin and I met each other. Um, we did the executive MBA program. I think you were the weekend and I was the nighttime program. I was the nighttime week, you know, weekday program. And I did it literally because <laughs> they were paying for it. It was free. And, and I didn't have to put $42,000 out of my pocket. That's literally the reason why. Um, I just took advantage of the benefit. The reason why, and then uh, I didn't really like pharmaceutical sales. It wasn't for me. I didn't like that whole rat race of trying to push drugs legally. Um, and Durham was just a really hard territory to work. So I was like, well, you know, I came across this article in the Wall Street Journal one night about luxury brands hiring MBAs. Well, I had my MBA, but I didn't have the luxury experience. And in the article, they mentioned International University of Monaco and the fact that they had started a master's of science and luxury goods program. And I got online that night, uh, saw that I was, it was like an early, it was like late July. And I had like a really small window to apply. I applied and they, accepted me 
And in 30 days, I quit my job, moved my life overseas and did my master's in luxury goods for a year. Um, it was a 10 month program, really enjoyed that experience. Uh, economic downturn though, when I came back, cause that was right, 2007, 2008, when you had, we had the uh, economic downturn. Mm-hmm. Lots of interviews, was running the pavement for several weeks off and on in New York and people wanted to hire, but they didn't even know if they were gonna have jobs. So my aunt Carmen, who um, is the previous head of not only the high school at North Carolina Central, but before that she was head of the Career and Development Center at North Carolina Central. So she's well-connected. And she asked me had I ever thought about teaching. And because I had done my thesis in um, luxury tourism, she said, why don't you talk to the department chair at in the uh, hospitality, the hospitality department. And I did, went in on a Thursday. She's like, no, I don't have anything. She called me back that Friday and just by happen chance, this guy had needed to go on medical leave. And she was like, I need you like Monday. So that's how I got hired. And I was only supposed to be teaching for the semester. And by God's grace, the associate dean said, no, we got to give her a full year contract, no matter what. So I was like, better yet. So I got to try out teaching. And literally like the first day that I walked into the classroom was when I was like, yeah, this PhD thing, this is what I want. I like it. I like the energy. Wow. So I want to make sure I got that right. So you did the master's program or the MBA first? Which one did you do? I did my MBA first. Okay, MBA first. And then you did the master's program after it. Right. You came back to the States. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So you came back to the States and when you came back to the States, there was some economic things going on. Right. Yeah. And then that's when you got the job teaching, which makes Bush sense because you had to say again. Bush was our president. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not the father, the son. So. Around that time, economic downturn, you come back and you have two master's degrees. So you start teaching. So now that you're teaching, you discovered that you loved it. Is that what it was? Yes, I just dis- I discovered that I loved it. Um, but prior to that, when we, you know, when you do the whole walkthrough for your MBA programs and stuff, mm-hmm. and I went for the uh, Inside Kenny Flag the weekend at Chapel Hill, I cannot remember the man's name. I just remember he had this bright red hair. Um, and he was telling us, he's like, yeah, you're here for the MBA program, but I just want you to know that we desperately need people of color to get their PhDs in business. We need black faculty. I mean, he just put it on the table. He's like, this, this is what we need. Um, and if anyone's ever interested in getting their PhD in business, by all means, please see me. Um, that was my first tug. And then when I was overseas um, at International University of Monaco or IUM as we call it, there was a professor there who was encouraging me to get my PhD and saw that in me as well. But I mean, I was a paper chaser. I was like, I'm on my moolah. I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure if I want to take four or five years out of my life, you know, et cetera, et cetera, live like a poor person. That just wasn't my goal. And then the economic downturn pushed me into something I never would have chosen, if that makes sense. Awesome. You know, that actually makes sense now because Hearing this part of your story now helps me really connect the dots. So 
let's talk about, you know, now you decide to pursue a PhD, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll get to what happens during your PhD process later. So let's just talk about a PhD in general, right? For people who may be new to the topic or exploring, and I know we got some people on here. I saw Joy popped in here. I see Kanithia dropped in. I see uh, KT actually, and KT, she actually teaches social media. So she has students in social media. So we want to network her to get some students, you know, to do internships. That's what we're going to call it. But um, let's tell us this. Tell us about the most rewarding aspects of getting a PhD for the people who don't know, right? Is it the money? Is it something else? In 2021, what do you consider the most rewarding aspects of getting a PhD? No one can tell me you don't qualify for the position. Because for me, initially, I was trying to circumvent the process and think that I did not need my PhD to teach, right? You know, I had to be kid. I'm me. I've done these things. I don't need, I don't, I don't need this. I don't need the letters. Just let me do what I do. I know what I'm doing. Um, and you know, the humbling moment is no one's gonna hire you. If you want to teach on the collegiate level and you want to be paid well, the PhD is necessary. It's just that simple. Awesome. You know, that actually is interesting because. You know, oftentimes, you know, people will say or the rumor would be like, oh, you can teach with a master's degree. So you had two master's degree, but still something didn't feel right. It sounds like you were like, yeah, I feel like a certain type of rejection or qualification is happening. So you decided something different. Go ahead. Yes. Um, And I later became, you know, so now that you've been I've been doing this for 14 years. I now understand why, because I also served as a department chair at St. Augustine's University in Raleigh for um, a while before I went to Bentley University. And I, I understand why it's necessary for the PhD. It's about accreditation. So for the num- for every X number of students, you have to have one faculty member who has a PhD. If you get caught out there as a departmental program or as a university having too many people without PhDs, then you are at risk of losing accreditation. So that it, it, it boils down to that. And you know, an, an accreditation is about brand management and stature and being able to say you, you know, you have these accreditations for your programs. And you know, it's a recruitment tool for students. And it's you get to say, well, we have. X number of faculty with PhDs, and these are all the you know wonderful things that they're doing with their research. I mean, it definitely is a promotional tool. So now I understand. You know, now now that I, when I had to do accreditation, right, <laughs> you go through the process, you understand why it's necessary. Well, you know that that makes a lot of sense because, as you can imagine, you know, with accreditation and things like that, which is a recruiting tool, a marketing tool. It's, 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 it's a ranking tool. It's yep. that that's not tied to the master's degrees. It's tied to the PhD. And then, as you say, that definitely helps the university. Tell us about this, this the different flavors of PhD. You know, people may hear about there's a research PhD, there's a teaching PhD. You've said consistently teaching, teaching, teaching. What's your perspective on the difference of what is it? Well, let's not get into the details, but what's the difference between a research and a teaching type PhD? Um, so 
re, it, it, I would say a traditional university um, program, no matter if it's tier one, tier two or tier three, um, has always been research focused. So a research focused PhD is means you get hired to do conduct research and to publish in academic journals. Um, and the requirement, and you, and you have to do that in order to get tenure. Um, and tenure simply is just keeping your job forever. And you go up for tenure after you get hired as an assistant professor and you go up for tenure around your fifth, between your fifth and your sixth year, typically, um, and being in, at the institution. Um, in order to get tenure, you typically have to have five or more articles published in journal articles. And that depends on the tier of the university. And then your teaching load is lower. Um, so you're only teaching maybe one to two classes per semester. And what you get is what they call like a research reprieve because and you, and you, you, they lessen your teaching load because you are doing more research. And that's what they want you to focus on. Um, the teaching focus positions are fairly new. And when I say fairly new, like within, within the last five years or so, and they are increasingly becoming more and more popular because universities are realizing no matter the tier that there are just some people who are better at teaching than they are. And there's some people who are just better at research. So they're now trying to create two different paths to success in the academic marketplace. Um, I would say the, there's still more prestige uh, attached to being a research focused PhD. And those who are on, you know, can, you know, put in the chat whether they believe me or not, or, you know, I mean, you know like if they agree with me, not believe, but agree with me or not. The teaching focused positions tend to come with less pay and more work because teaching loads end up being what we call a three, three, a four, four or a five, five load. So you're teaching anywhere between six to 10 classes for the entire academic school year. Okay, so 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 thanks for that. So you mentioned money earlier, right? You, you about the money, right? So I'm kind of conflicted, right? Because on one hand you're like, hey, the money is coming. You focus on money, but it seems like the research PhD would lead more to that six six-figure salary plus, but it seems like you were still hardcore focused on the teaching side. Is that fair? Very. Or was fair, that? Yeah. It was not that simple. I'm just wondering. You know, how did you go through that process? Um, I knew from so I, I I knew I always wanted to be teaching focused. I was not as clear about what the parameters were around research. Mm -hmm. And I got, you, you know, you, you, you learn pretty quickly when you're, when you're a doctoral student, do not say that you want to teach. You better say you want to research. Okay. So that's like taboo. You just don't say it. No, you don't. Okay. Okay. Not that something has happened since I graduated in 2017, four years okay. ago, but um, it's still kind of taboo to say, I want to be teaching focus. It is taboo. Like in, in, um, Amber's situation, um, she's in, you know, uh, Fred's situation, 
they, you know, they've gone into industry. Um, that's pretty taboo to do as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so before we talk about the, you know, where things can go wrong with a PhD, you know, the ups and the down, tell us about, you know, one last, you know, point of this PhD, what type of person do you think should be considering or pursuing a PhD? Is it a personality? Is it, what's your thoughts or recommendation on that? Um, so my, the biggest reason why you go get a PhD is because you ha- you, you're intellectually curious about a topic that you are just so passionate about that you want to discover and, and answer a question and then finding and aligning that with a question that has not been answered in your space. And being, and then you answer that question, or start, or you know, start creating that body of work to answer that question and become the expert in that field. Okay. But it's all about intellectual curiosity. A lot of, um, some, you know, we have online. We can talk about this a little bit too. But I kind of want to throw this out here real quick. Is we we probably could discuss at some point. If some people are talking uh, considering online PhDs versus traditional PhD programs as well. And um, the pluses and minuses of doing so, because they're very much aligned to, to intellectual curiosity or not. Okay. Yeah, I think that'd be a great topic um, for the discussion. So let's make sure that we um, bring that up. So now let's get to the good part, right? <laughs> let's talk about, now that we talked about the PhDs, the upside, right? The good part. Mm-hmm. Then let's talk about... Mm, how things can go wrong, right? Let's talk about, you know, um, the ugly side of the PhD process. So now let's talk about your experience or not only your experience, you can, you know, change the name, protect the innocence, but tell us about some of the ugly experiences and how a PhD process can go wrong. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, ugly is such a strong word, Calvin. Um, (laughs) Is that a strong word? It's a strong word. And, what I don't want to do is deter people from getting their PhD because I'm very much a proponent of getting a PhD. I don't care what field it's in. Um, we need Americans we, to, to get their PhD and it is imperative because increasingly uh, people from our fellow, our fellow people from other countries are coming here to answer these intellectually curious questions that they have and we are not. I love the word you partici- say that. Yes, our participation in intellectual curiosity as Americans is decreasing. And um, there's some areas that definitely need our help and increase in enrollment. So I just wanna say that first. Um, the challenges that we, you can definitely have um, are, one, you can have life challenges, right? Um, I've seen people get married during their doctoral program. I've seen people have babies during their doctoral program and had to literally send their children home to their home country because their dissertation chair told them that they had to, that their children could not stay with them. So the mothers did not get to bond with their newborns. Wow. Yes, that has occurred. I've watched it firsthand. Um, you can have cultural clashes because if you're, you can have, when I say about cultural clash, clashes, um, in particular, you know, I'm, of course I'm black, I'm African-American. My dissertation chair was Asian. 
And uh, we were losing about two to three family members per year to cancer. My mom went through cancer. My dad died the first year in my program, I think. And um, he, yeah, he died the summer before my second year in my program. Um, he was going through chemo treatments my first year. So she didn't understand that. She is like, I don't understand why you can't, you know, push through this process at this particular time. So there was cultural differences because, you know, Asian cultures, you push through, you push through whatever's on the outside, you, you ignore it. You, you know, it, whether it is a family or loved one, you just had a baby or not, like this is your focus, right? Um, and like I said, that's just cultural differences. Um, it could be someone not understanding your research or dissertation chair is not really feeling your research idea. They're not willing to support your intellectual curiosity and they want you to change to something that they feel is more pertinent and most likely it's something that they're researching and they want to have published as well. Um, location, uh, a lot of times students, doctoral students get depressed because they're in a location where there's no one that looks like them. They have no friends, no family. Um, and when they are ready to get away from that, they don't have a way to do so and connect with people that look like them or just to have a good time period, you know, mm -hmm. um, because you're told from day one that you're going to eat, live and breathe this process and you're not going to do anything else. Um, let's see. Go ahead. I, I tend to pause on questions because Zoom interrupts you. So if you see no. me pausing, I'm just confirming that you're um, done. But you're going to say something else. Uh, funding can be mm -hmm. a challenge. Um, if you're a first generation PhD and your family doesn't quite, I mean, they, they're like, oh, great, you're getting a PhD, but they don't really necessarily understand the process and why you would need money, you know, for housing and things like that. They're kind of like, well, you chose to do this. You figure out how you're going to fund it. Um, okay. you know, families are you know, first generation, anything. Um, you can have some some issues with you know financial support and trying to find fun, try to find funding. So I would say location funding, dissertation advisor, and just like family life. Those are the things that could be very challenging and difficult to navigate. It sounds like record. anything that deals with life <laughs> or distracts yeah. you from the process can become a hurdle. Tell me yeah. this. This is this is. Um, you know, one of those weird questions. I'm going to call it weird just because it is. How about bullying? I mean, have you ever heard any stories of there being PhD advisors or chairs or people who may participate in behavior that seems like, you know, academic bullying to some extent? Okay, so um, Calvin, you know, I'm one of those people who keeps it. <clears throat> 100. We'll, 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 we'll um, delete and, this part of it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I walk a very fine line on sharing this particular situation because it's my situation. Mm -hmm. um, but what I, so let me say this. I, bullying does occur. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain professors who were you know, let's call it pledging, right? If you've ever been online, pledged, you know, sorority, fraternity, um, been a bit of, you know, been a part of any type of group, 
there's a certain amount of pledging to that process or, you know, I won't say we call it intake, but, you know, in other words, it's, it's psychological. It can be some psychological bullying to a yeah, certain degree. Like, like hazing almost. Yeah, like hazing. Mm-hmm. And um, when I had approached my department chair and my graduate student advisor about the difficulties that I was having with my dissertation chair, they both told me that they already knew that she mistreated students, I mean, her advisees. Um, I was told that they even heard her doing it. And I was told that she lunged across the table at a fellow faculty member during a final defense for one of the students. So they were well aware of her behavior. So me telling them how she was treating me, they were not surprised at all. Uh, What I was told to do was to keep my head, head low, to be quiet, that they would have a discussion with her and let her know by all means she was to get me out and that I would not have any problems. Now, I'm gonna tell you the caveat to this is, I had help because those two, because the department chair, her boss, and the graduate student advisor were also on my dissertation committee. Mm-hmm. If those two people had not been on my dissertation committee, Calvin, I don't know if I would have graduated because she had, you know, she had tenure, she had the protection of tenure. She had the protection of reputation, despite them knowing how she was mistreating students. But tenure really was was her protection situation. They said, there's nothing we can do. We cannot touch her because she has tenure. Wow. That's like no words. Thank you for sharing that story. And, you know, um, we can easily edit this out. But I, I, I thank you for sharing it because I think it's a part of the thing that no one tells you when you're doing this. They tell you things like, fine, you know, uh, you know, sponsor or someone that, you know, supports your research or what you're interested in, but they don't tell you what happens if you don't. What happens if you don't, you can find yourself in my word, an ugly situation. Yeah. And I like the words you choose. There was a bit of what you call luck, where it seems like by having, you know, some strategic alliances, you were able to get past those things. So thank you for sharing that story. Um, yep. Before we talk about the community stuff, let's talk about, and I should have probably changed the order of this question, the PhD candidate, right? You know, Mm -hmm. actually, we already talked about that. I'm going to skip that part. Um, Let's see. Um, Another challenge, right? A big challenge. I call it the, you know, the dissertation situation. The (laughs) all but dissertation, you know. Yeah, they call it ABD? Yeah. Uh, ABD in Raleigh-Durham where they got more PhDs than they say pigs or something like that. I don't know. It's like, oh, wow. you know, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the known word. It, the place just produces PhDs. Right. But I ran into a lot of people using this term. They're like, Oh, I'm ABD. I'm ABD. I'm like, what does that even mean? So break it down for us. What does ABD mean? And why does it matter? Okay. Um, ABD, once you finish all of your coursework and you have, um, and then depending on the program, whether or not you have, past your comprehensive exams. It really depends on um, some programs to say, 
your your ABD once you finished all of your coursework. And then some people will say your ABD once you finished coursework and comprehensive exams. So just like I said, it just depends on the program. And now even some programs have gone away from comprehensive exams and replaced that with you have to publish a couple of articles, you know, for you, you know, to 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 get to the dissertation stage. Um, and once you've done those things, you're all but dissertation. That's the A B D. Okay. Only thing left is to complete that dissertation. So, is it possible for someone to be stuck in this A B D state, this holding pattern, for five, 10, 15 years? Is that possible? Um, it's very possible, but let me pack back up real quick. And for those who are not sure what the dis dissertation means, because I just don't want to take that for granted that they do. Mm -hmm. So um, the dissertation is equivalent to, if you've heard the word thesis, um, a thesis is very, uh, some, I guess, well, now they even have bachelor's thesis, yeah, bachelor's theses, depending upon the university, the department. So you could come basically what you're doing at that point in time is what you came to the university, you told them in your application, the question that you wanted to answer and do research on, that's your dissertation. So that's just a big paper, you know, hundred to several hundred pages or so. I think mine was two something. Hmm. And that's a quantitative, hmm. and, I, and I did a quantitative dissertation. So um, qualitative work tends to be run, but run somewhere between two to four, 500 pages, depending on, you know, what your topic is and how much your chair tells you to write. It sounds like a book. I mean, yeah, yeah, it, it could be it, could, it a very, probably um, a, a sleeper, though. Like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure. How, I'm not really I'm not really sure if they're New York Times thrillers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> but. Unfortunately, um, about 40, a little bit over half of PhDs, 56.6%, and that was in 2008, um, of PhDs who start their program actually finish. So you have roughly 43% or so that don't. And mm. those people are officially what we call stuck in ABD land. Um, or all but dissertation land and you don't want to get stuck there because you have put in, in, in an inordinate amount of time and you've made a significant financial investment at that point. So but you could be stuck the there average, for the rest of your career. Uh, yes. Uh -huh. You could mm -hmm. be. The average, the average time it takes to get a PhD now, no matter the program, is 10 years. Mm. It took me eight. My program said I should have been done in three. Um, I thought it was still five years. It's 10 years now? What the? Yeah. Well, the, av the average bachelor's degree is being completed in six years now because kids take a gap year um, and or they go they drop to part-time status because a lot of kids now have to make a financial contribution to finishing their bachelor's degree. Wow. So... That's crazy. You caught me off guard with those numbers. I didn't know they had changed. Let's talk about this ABD again when it comes to men versus women. I mean, I love the conversation we had when it comes to 
ABD, that's a scary, no person's land. You can get lost. You can get stuck there for the rest of your life. But at the same time, it affects men and women differently. Tell us yeah. about how this ABD affects men versus women. Um, I was trying to find some official numbers before I, you know, went out here and unofficially said some stuff. <laughs> don't, don't, don't quote you here. Yeah. So I couldn't find any true statistics that broke, broke it down between men and women. Um, but what I'm going to say is word on the street, i.e. in our programs, <laughs> is that women typically are the ones that are ABD. Um, we tend to leave because we are the caretakers of our homes and our older family members. Um, and we just typically don't have that um, support system to finish. Well, you know, that's crazy, but it, it makes sense, right? I mean, if you're having children, if you're taking care of family, if you're, once again, anything that can interview with the PhD, what we said earlier is life, right? Yes. Moms have life, right? They have yes. children to take care of. They have family to take care of. So I can actually see that. Let's, let's talk about the health risks and then we'll get into some discussions because we're at the top okay. of the hour. Are there any, through your observation, mental health risks that come associated with the PhD process? I guess my facial expressions, which, which you know, my face can never lie, even though my mouth probably could lie. Uh, <laughs> yes, there are definite um, health risks. Um, there's physical health risks and there's mental health risks. Um, we have all seen in the news throughout the years, you know, sporadically, where graduate students have um, shot people in their department, um, you know, on, on campus, uh, because they've been dismissed from the program, um, or didn't like a certain grade, or, you know, whatever happened. Um, the physical health risks are you could stress yourself out to the point of where um, I heard a story about where a person stressed, the, they stressed themselves out so much that their neck just couldn't move for months on end. And it was just nothing. And it was just pure T stress in the body from the PhD program. Um, and they just couldn't, they couldn't move their neck for a certain amount of time. Um, I personally got vertigo. I, I stressed myself out so much that I had vertigo and I also um, had dropped my vitamin levels had dropped because I wasn't taking care of myself nutritionally wise. I was almost at zero for vitamin D and B during my program. And it took them, it took my, the doctors a while to find it. Um, so there's, you can stress yourself out, you know, from poor nutrition, staying up late, you know, pulling all nighters. I know some people live with the uh, sleep when you're dead. You know, that can be a motto. Um, I want to say that it should not be a motto. You do need to get adequate sleep. Um, and what else? Mental health wise, people will have breakdowns. And that's another reason why people go ABD and leave. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. I mean, um, I think now's a good time where we can transition into discussion, you okay. know, based on some of the, the backdrop that you gave us is that you gave us the upside, right? You gave us, Hey, you know, 
nobody can tell you no, there's certain qualifications that come from it. We can pursue the path of the research PhD that's more distinguished. We can take a different path that's, you know, more, you know, into teaching, but teaching is still, let's just say, not highly respected from a PhD, so much so that you can't even mention it in certain places and certain programs, if that is your true passion. But then there's also another stigma if you choose to take that and go to corporate and things like that. I want to do open discussion um, with some yeah. of the people we have here. So let's see, who do we have online? Let's see. Uh, let's see here. Well, let's start with, uh, I see Dr. Uh, Kay on there. Who else on there? Let's do open discussion. Katie, help me get some questions from the audience. Because I was trying to check and see um, if um, certain people were still here. But let's... Um, Sure. Let's get some questions from the audience. I, I have some that can kind of get us going, but let's see if we have any from the audience. Okay, we've got one from Aisha. And okay. I, Aisha asks, what would be the best way to obtain a PhD? Is there a certain track or dual program one should take? And I'm not certain what, um, what um, academic area that Aisha is actually asking about, but perhaps this is just a general question. Um, Aisha, can you un unmute yourself and tell me exactly what type of program? So I was just curious in general, I've currently have, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology, behavior and science, but I've been more so doing like preschool education. So my mother would love you. <laughs> it, it's a great feel. It's just the pay isn't ever going to be what I want it to be. And when I tried to move into higher positions, it's like, oh, you're you're qualified, but we can't give you as much as you're asking. So I I feel like I need to reach another level with my education in order to go for other positions. So I just want to know if there's a certain way one should go about like obtaining their PhD as if they have those co-enrollment programs where you can do your bachelor's and earn your master's, like they do the RN, the BSN type programs. Um, so if there is someone on here who is in the psychology area who could answer that, I'm going to defer to them first and then I can get my general thoughts on that. Okay. But if there's a psychology expert, I'd rather for them to answer. Okay, so we'll hold that question um, shortly. See, who else? I asked a few people to um, unmute. Let's see here. Joy, give me your thoughts, Joy. I know... Um, you had been thinking about the PhD, considering PhD. Um, give us a question for the general audience or actually a personal question. Good evening. Um, thank you for sharing with us. Um, this is a personal question. Uh, as you are, so I'm interested in getting a PhD uh, specifically in management. And as you, um, as I've been doing some research and preparing, um, I'm thinking about what types of research or um, backgrounds in research you need to be competitive today in getting into programs. Or are you finding, I'm an African-American woman. Mm -hmm. Are you finding that there, because what I've heard is Nowadays, so many people are applying with research experience that it's becoming more of a thing. 
So I've been working for almost uh, 15, 20 years now, and I don't have that research experience, but I do have a lot of work experience. I do have an MBA um, as well from Fuqua High. I still like Tar Heels though. <laughs> it's okay. But I, I like the Fuqua School of Business. I've taken some classes there. So, <laughs> so I'm just wondering your opinion. Is it some, is research experience something that I really need to worry about and, or is, or do I compensate with, by taking classes around statistics or whatever to show that I have the competency? if I didn't do a lot of that in my MBA program? Um, so I'm going to say still apply. Uh, I don't, I would, I don't, I don't think you're not a candidate. Um, I'm going to say that those who come with those research papers and stuff um, went to programs. Most, I hate to say this, most likely did not have the work experience, the volume of work experience that you have. And they've just gone to school and they're really great researchers. Are you reading in between what I'm saying? No. I think I am. <laughs> okay. So let, so, um, so my, my little sister, Mega, is on here, or at least I think, I think yeah, Mega Gupta. Um, I call her my little sister. She and I went to the same program at UNC, uh, UNC Greensboro. And I think, Mega, didn't you, didn't you come to the program with some research and some published stuff, but you didn't have as much work experience? Let's see. She's actually muted. I'm gonna ask oh, she's her. muted. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I'm going to ask her. But, but that's actually a, a great point because I know yeah. in all our talk we didn't really talk about the admissions process so Joy yeah. thank you for reminding us of the admissions which is a whole nother dynamic that we didn't speak to we may be able to get Miss uh, um, Gupta off mute but um, if not um, let's see I actually am picking up what you're putting down and essentially yeah. it sounds like it seems if if you don't have professional experience it's almost like you have to have that research experience, whether it be, you know, you've been in school the whole time and you didn't have to work or you're in school the whole time. So you better do some research. But yeah. if you have real world experience, it could essentially balance your application in a different way. Yes, exactly. So um, I wouldn't worry about it, Joy, too, because the latest research, which I did, I pulled some numbers last night just to kind of see where we were. The average age of a PhD right now, um, no matter the program, is somewhere between we the highest degrees awarded in 2020 were between the ages of 45 and 49, which means you know people are choosing the PhD wow. as a mid-career choice. Wow, I thought yeah. it was just me. No, it's not just you. So, so I can no. be the norm again. Okay, I'm okay yeah. with that. So while while so for instance, it's like you know, um, and I and, and I'm gonna compare my I'm comparing myself to my cohort when I went when I did my PhD. Most of my cohort were uh, mid to late twenties, and um, I was in my late thirties. So I was kind of like that mid-career change. 
Um, several, mo, uh, several of them, like I said, my little sister Mega, she came to the program with research behind her. I didn't, but I felt I still was able to contribute to the conversation. I still mm -hmm. was able to get the research done. And if you get a great cohort, they like I did, you, those people who have those those research skills are gonna wrap themselves around you and make sure you come up to speed. Uh, so there's different ways to get it. I, yeah. I actually, I, I like that, I like that. So let me give, I'm, I'm gonna add a question while we um, wait for other people. If you have a question, feel free to put it in the chat or raise your hand, uh, whatever works for you, unmute yourself. So Natalie, one so, of the things we uh, talked real, about, go ahead. Real quick, I do wanna um, give Aisha's question some some insight. So Aisha, okay, there, are, there are dual program, there are dual masters and PhD programs. I'm not really sure if it exists in your area of psychology um, or early childhood education, it sounds like too, you might be a little bit interested in. Um, my mother was the director of the, uh, of the Head Start program and she also helped start the National Smart Start program in, in the country when, Clinton, when President Clinton was in office. So I'm, familiar, I'm very familiar with early childhood education in, in your space. I'm not as familiar with how to get a PhD in early education and how beneficial that would be to your space I would probably say the masters, and now because you because you mentioned money, and I understand money is very important. I think the highest return on your investment is probably going to be at the master's level, not necessarily at the doctoral level. But I could be wrong. Okay, Natalie, just so you know, I think Aisha is actually in your area. So Aisha, are you still in? Um, were you in the Charlotte area or the Raleigh Durham area? I'm in Raleigh Durham in Triangle Research Park. Oh, okay. Okay, okay so. You should definitely reach out to Natalie online because I'm pretty sure she's the she's like the mayor, unofficial mayor of Raleigh Durham. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure she can connect you with some people. Okay. And the awesome. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And the current director of the program at Head Start, um, my mother, my mother raised him in, in his to his position. So I can get you in contact with him. Nice. Okay. okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. So Ned, let's talk about this topic. And I think it's very interesting, especially for this audience. What are the dynamics? You, you mentioned before that the possibility that there's discussion, right, on the tenure track versus the teacher track. And there's been discussion or maybe thoughts of, hey, maybe this tenure track should go away. Give us a background on that. Why would that even be the case? Why would anyone be considering changing the tenure track and what would the options be? The discussion that's occurring uh, now in academia about getting rid of tenure uh, somewhat coincides with graduate students finally starting to speak up about the experiences that they've had with their chairs and somewhat having a way to punish tenured professors for lack of a better way of putting it, pledging graduate students. That's one, you know, that's one part of the discussion. discussion. The other part of the discussion is just kind of like where in the, where else in the world does anybody else get to keep their job? Um, tenure can make professors very lazy. Um, they can stop doing as much research as they did before. Um, they 
they're, sometimes their teaching skills lack and lags as well. Um, so that's that's another reason to get rid of tenure. The third, the third reason to get rid of tenure probably is money. Um, tenure professors, you know, tend to be the highest paid professionals. So if you even the playing field and make and make everybody uh, even in terms of employees and make it performance based like it is in corporate America, then everybody has to stay on their, you know, stay on their toes to keep their job. Well, th thank you for sharing that. I, I think that's a, a very interesting, if not controversial topic. Anyone in the audience have any questions or thoughts about that? What would the world look like if there was a different path than tenureship? Would that be a good thing, a bad thing? Who has any thoughts they want to share on that? So I can, I'm, I'm, I might put the pressure on Amber here. Uh -oh. and, I don't, and I don't know if Mega has also um, had the opportunity to unmute herself, but both of them work in corporate. And um, Mega decided that she did not want to teach. I'm just telling all her business. But, <laughs> but she decided early. We had a discussion privately. She was, you know, she was, you know, she was very hesitant to let people know that she didn't want to go teach. But she was able to um, find a position um, that she loves and um, she has a wonderful husband and two beautiful kids and all that great stuff. So she's living the life that she's always wanted. Um, and then I know Amber also chose to leave a very nice tenure, uh, tenure track position as well and go back to corporate. And she can speak to why she did that. Wow. Amber is unmuted. Amber, you left a tenure yeah. track? Well, okay. And look, and I'm going to put her, I'm going to put her, I'm, I'm going to also promote her a little bit more by saying she came with, she came with the A, a plus germs too. Oh, Angela, I mean, Amber, <laughs> please tell us more. Um, I think, so, so first of all, I mean, to be very candid, um, by my third year, I was told in my department that, that the university did not feel that I was going to meet the requirements in time for tenure. And so that, you know, they weren't going to have me back. And so that was devastating. Yeah. It was absolutely devastating because um it was absolutely devastating because like it actually wasn't a reflection of my experience with research um at the school um and that I felt like I was moving along fine my advisors and former committee members thought I was moving along fine so I was pretty shocked by that but I didn't appeal it and the main reason why I didn't appeal it was because um, I never felt comfortable. Like my career, um, I've always been in marketing and advertising. I started in advertising on the agency side. I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the pace of the work. I enjoyed having like the direct impact like any research that I did as a strategist, like there was a direct impact. I enjoyed that. I didn't appreciate how 
the lack of diversity in the environment. And I really wanted to investigate that. So that's when I met my dissertation chair, or the one who would become the woman, um, Geraldine, Dr. Geraldine Rosa Henderson, who would later become my chair. Um, like she introduced me to um, really taking a PhD seriously as I was doing research about how the industry could become more diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, she encouraged me to apply. I did. Um, she took me on as her student. And when we talked about money, she wanted to prep me to be able to be prepared to work in a business school. And I did that. And that's how I got the job in the College of Business at St. John's. But the, I mean, just the career, um, the experience of, you know, doing everything that I could and that not being good enough was just devastating. It was just absolutely devastating. And, and then on top of that, to be in an environment where in other, in otherwise situation, you were sort of well-liked and (laughs) well-loved, but still it's not good enough. Um, and then not ever really feeling comfortable. Like even though the even though advertising was not as diverse as I would want it to be, I never felt uncomfortable. I never felt that I couldn't be myself, you know? Um, and so, so that's why, that's how that happened the way that it did. I probably still would have left anyway because I didn't have this, the comfort I thought that I just, thought, okay, if I dress a certain way in this university environment, you know, that somehow that I'll fit the mold. And I just never quite felt like I did. Um, So, yeah. Well, Amber, thank you for sharing that story. I mean, one of the initial things that was asked of me when I was kind of preparing for the session was, hey, it kind of sounds like corporate America's glass ceiling a little bit. It kind of sounds like, you know, when there's not enough money or revenue in a year and they do, a, a, I forget what they call it, a, a fixed ranking, where no matter what work you did, everybody gets a B minus, which means you get no raise. It seems like it's, it's luck if you, if you start your PhD at the right program in the right place in the right city at the right time, then maybe you things work out. But if anything is not there, then things could be go wrong. And I'm definitely was listening in between the lines, Amber, as you spoke. And it just seems like there was definitely some stuff that even though you were flexible and tried to do the thing, you never really totally felt comfortable, which is why you made a different decision. Yeah, and that's exactly right. But again, I mean, I'll echo Natalie in that I would never tell anybody, don't do it. Don't get your PhD. I mean, ultimately, what I figured out is that, you know, it's not, you know, everybody says like, you know, there's a game to be played, right? And you have to know how to play the game. Mm-hmm. But what I learned in academia is it's not just that you have to play the game. It's like, you have to decide whether you want to play or not. Like I did it, I just didn't find that game to be very fun <laughs> or interesting mm-hmm. or like fitting for me and my personality. Now I'm back working in advertising. And although um, it's not perfect, I, that game I understand and I can play and it's fun. And, <laughs> you know, I don't feel like I'm not myself. 
in that environment. And because I'm a strategy leader, which is a combination of like lots of different aspects of data collection and research, and then acting on those insights for um, campaign and brand purposes, because I'm doing all that, I'm using everything that I have. I'm using my PhD every day. And boy, that teaching experience is what's getting me through these little, these teams with some of my <laughs> young people on my yeah. team. But, um, but I, you know, I'm grateful for that experience. I wouldn't be as effective as I am now in my corporate role had I not, you know, gone through that program. And when I walk into a room and I say, and I talk about research, everybody listens. There's no, oh, Amber doesn't know what she's talking about. I wish somebody would <laughs> listen. I will read them their rights on the research now. <laughs> awesome, awesome. A whole different you know, type of street cred. Go ahead, and, go ahead, Natalie. And what I, you know, and what I want to add to that is, um, you know, I'm coming from a PhD in um, retail in, uh, under under a school of business um, and, you know, Amber, you know, advertising, um, which is, you know, closely aligned with a school of business. So I, and so I want, want what I want to say is this, there are corporations looking for scientists with PhDs. You do not have to be brainwashed into thinking that you have to get your PhD and become a slave I'm sorry. To <laughs> I just said it right. To academia. More, more wine, you more wine. Get, right. You can get your PhD and you can go back and work in the corporate space. I have another friend who went through the tenure, um, got who well, a Princeton graduate, went to Duke, did everything Duke asked him to do. He didn't get tenure. He has, he has since left. He is a statistician. He is, he's been st a, statistician, a statistician for several companies. He's, he's been the, the head of departments. He's now also um, part of several startups. And he's even encouraging me to get into the space as well of start, you know, doing startup. And, you know, if, I, if I'm frank with, frank with your listeners tonight, um, I'm working part-time because I'm trying to find my, I'm, like Amber said, I'm no longer comfortable in academia. And I'm in a little bit of anomaly because I've worked at predominantly black institutions. I have worked at predominantly white institutions. I have worked at for-profit institutions. The only ones that I have not worked at is I have not taught at a Hispanic serving institution. And they all have their lack of a way to put it, they all, they all have their pluses and minuses. Mm -hmm. um, and they all have their different set of requirements. And even at predominantly black serving institute, uh, predominantly black institutions, which, you know, we call the HBCU environment, um, you, you have less resources, you, you have 25 to 50% cut in salary pay, your teaching loads are a lot higher, typically four, four, five, five a semester, and they still want you to do research and publish. And you know, so it's it's a it's a more stressful environment where some people are feel like they're overworked, underpaid, and not appreciated. Um, and then you could go to a predominantly white institution and face, let's just call it racism. 
um, you know, I, I don't know what else to call. And, or you couldn't because say, for instance, like I was at Bentley for two and a half years. I had no issues. They wanted to keep me and I wanted to stay at Bentley. However, they voted not to create a teaching focused position for me. The department chair wanted to do that, but you know, you, you take the, but the rest of the department didn't. So he, you know, he's like, they, they, they voted to pretty much keep research focused tenure track positions. They were not willing to create a clinical professorship for me. So, I mean, otherwise I probably would still be at Bentley. You know, awesome story. And you know, the way I summarize is that there are opportunities that you may not consider or that you may not know about is if you're just listening to the traditional route, the traditional messaging. And yes. it seems like it's definitely an experience of trust your intuition, trust your heart, trust your desire to find that passion. Yes. And continue to find that. But this PhD is not the civil bullet. It's not the simple solution, you know, because for me as a older person who is not in my 20s or 30s, and I'm considering this, one of the key things I really thought is that I already have a career, I already have a function, I already have, you know, I like the way Amber said, she says, I already have this thing that I'm familiar with, right? Yeah. And a part of my thing is, do I really want to start over from scratch and go learn a new language, a new politics, a new ebb and flow in this academic environment? My answer was no. So I really like Amber's story because it reminds me of my story, but I had to really trust my instinct as opposed to, yeah, they're telling you, you have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. And I love the fact that you and Amber have been so open and vulnerable and transparent that you've allowed us to have an informed decision. As yeah. you advocate and recommend these things, it's not about the negativities. It's not about the challenges. It's about having an informed decision. Lastly, yeah. I had a question, but I got the answer. My question was, what role does correct mentoring, networking, and community play? One thing that I heard between your story and Amber's story is y'all knew people, whether it be you know, co-chairs or people along the way that help you navigate this so much so that when you ran into the hurdles or the roadblocks that you ran into, you begin to talk to people that help you find your true north along this path, but it wasn't a civil bullet. It wasn't a straight path. There was some discovery and it includes staying true to yourself. So I want to thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you, Amber. Thank you, you know, Dr. Balkum, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for chopping it up with us, making it plain, giving our audience access to information that you just may not find in some places. So I'm going to pause and y'all know what I do. I'm going to play some songs that I love that KD is going to complain about and, you know, just kind of take us out tonight. But um, before I do, I want to pause and see if there's any other questions that anyone else would like to ask before, you know, we, um, let this um, awesome discussion wrap up. There was a yeah. question by Summer. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Summer. You want to read it? Um how how do you how do you get past imposter syndrome in a PhD program? I'm I'm currently pursuing a PhD and sometimes feel inadequate, especially when I'm constantly editing, revising a chapter. 
What what stage are you in the process? I'm in a dissertation um, phase at the moment, and I currently just submitted submitted my chapter three. So I'm waiting on a response back from my chair. <laughs> Sometimes okay. I feel, especially when I'm editing. When I'm constantly editing and revising, I feel so inadequate sometimes, and I'm all, okay. I'm so close I'm co- I'm so close to being done, and, and sometimes I feel like giving up. But I, I I've I've gone I've I've come so I've come too far. Exactly. And this is something that I I've been working towards for a long time, and um, you know I didn't go to medical school route because I always want to be a doctor, but I didn't go to medical school route, so I went the PhD route after things changed in my career and stuff like that. So. The thing is, how can you get past imposter syndrome feeling like you're inadequate, feeling like it may take it's, it's taking you forever to get done with something that you've been working hard on for for a while? Um, I'm so okay. scared to be done and even funny. So it's, it's like I, it was at a point where I felt so stressed out. You know, I couldn't even sleep good at one point. Yes. So, Summer, I'm going to say what you're feeling is um, you're right on schedule for how you're feeling, feeling. And um, some of your, some, some of the imposter syndrome is based on the feedback that you're getting from your dissertation chair. And that is part of the pledging process. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yes, it's part yeah. that's part of the pledging process. Um, and what you have to stay grounded in and focused on is making those edits, asking for clarification, and just give them what they want. And, and that may not be what you want to hear, but that is what you have to do. Because right mm-hmm. now, your chair is trying to see what you were made of, honey. Okay. I appreciate your advice, Dr. Um, Dr. Balkan. I really yes. do. You know, and I'll, I'll just tell you real quick what happened to me when I was at that stage, really at that stage. Um, you know, I, I'm an excellent writer and I have all, all of my PhD professors told me that my writing was great. And I always got literally full points on my papers in my PhD program, except for one. And my chair, though, once I got to the dissertation stage, decided to pick me apart and tried to make me think that I did not understand English. So my mother told me to do something. And this, you know, mothers are wonderful human beings. She told me, she said, give her your, she said, give her what she wants. Even if it's, in, even though you know it's incorrect, you keep a second draft of the edits that you know are correct, when you go to print, you turn in your version. And that's exactly what I did. Okay. Wow. That's good advice. Thank you for your, um, for your answer. You're welcome. That Appreciate girl it. is on 